Hello and welcome back for another Club Sports 10-Bit podcast. This week is National Coaches Week and so what I want to do is go on a different tangent and really reflect on some of the stories that have moulded me over the last 30 years in coaching and it's not really a reflection just of me but hopefully a mirror of some of the experiences that you might have in your coaching career as you're developing now. So please bear with me. I'll be looking at the best, the worst, the highs and the lows of coaching. The very first thing though I do wish to reflect upon was a presentation I did at Mount Royal University to a group of physical literacy students. And the presentation came towards the end of their academic year. So I went in and gave a talk on my coaching career. And the first thing that I mentioned to all the students was that if they're looking for a stable, steady career, a nine to five with consistent progressions, this isn't the career. Coaching really, really isn't a career. It's a lifestyle. It impacts every walk of your life. There will be times when you're going to a session and you'll be hanging around at the end waiting for children to be picked up. Then there's planning, preparation, reflection, dealing with parents, making decisions in team selections, and again, even looking towards the governance side and working with the board of directors. So the first thing I'm trying to really get across here is that many of these aspects of coaching aren't in the job description, and they certainly very rarely fall within the realm of coaching role. So if you are just stepping onto the field, welcome, enjoy the ride, the roller coaster. I hope you'll stick with this podcast and listen to some of the pitfalls and some of the great experiences that I wouldn't change for the world. Um, I've loved my career. And in truth, I feel that I've never done a real working day in my life. There's been many challenges, don't get me wrong, and you're going to hear some of those now. I'm going to share those with you as I try and reflect on some of my highs and my lows. So to start with, what was the best team that I ever worked with? And bear in mind, I'm predominantly a soccer coach. So the first full-time job I ever had in soccer was at a club called Macclesfield Town, who this past week, due to COVID and irregularities, has gone out of business, sadly. But the club that I helped establish is still going and thriving. It's Macclesfield Town Ladies. And we started the club as a girls-only program. From that, we decided to try and get into a league. The girls needed competition. So we joined a newly formed league that was offering competition for a three-year age band under 15. And the girls were fresh to even playing the game. The game at the time in England was still in its infancy for girls. So we got uniforms together, sponsors, and we played our first competitive season. And it didn't start too well. There were scores of 20-0 against. Yeah, I can still recall with great pride the one game that we won. Joanne, my centre-half, got the ball on the halfway line and she decided to let rip and that was the only goal of the game. We won our first game 1-0. This didn't though turn into a rags to riches story. That was the only win we got that season. So why is this my most successful team? Predominantly because, as I said, the girls went on to form a club that is still going and thriving. I still keep in contact with many of the girls through social media, even though I'm now in Canada, and many of them went on playing for a long time. There was another team that was probably more successful in terms of outcomes, and that was when I coached in London. One of my first teams was Mill Lionesses Under-14s. These girls were exceptional. They had soccer or football in their head, in their heart, and in their feet. In contrast to the Macclesfield girls, they would quite comfortably go out and record scores of 15-0, 16-0, 20-0. Yet, why were they not more successful than the Macclesfield girls? And that comes back to how I define that success. I developed rapport with the Macclesfield girls and the Millwall girls. 
But many of the girls, the development that was experienced in Macclesfield was far more than the girls at Millwall. They were already established players who were above their competition. The girls in Macclesfield were below the competition and they had to strive for everything they got. So as a coach, you're looking at development and seeing what you can do in order to help players progress. So on reflection, yes, the Macclesfield Town girls were my most successful team in over 30 years of coaching. Looking back on some of my achievements, what am I most proud of? The two programs that I feel I have great pride in helping develop was the Middlesbrough Girls Centre of Excellence. This was one of the first centres of excellence in England at the time. They've now become academies. And the main reason why I was proud in this development was I was new in the club, new in the area in the northeast of England, which is a passionate hotbed of soccer. And it took many personal battles to convince some of the people in the club that I could do it and achieve the success that we did in establishing this centre. And with great pride looking back, one player did come through the programme and actually went on to captain England and Arsenal, and that was Jordan Nobbs. But there were many other successes that came out of it. Players who went on to join the armed services and forged their own career paths in their own way. Again, I'm still in contact with some of these players and it was great to see how the whole program evolved from a vision. I had the vision, I wanted to get the program going, I wanted to try and help players get playing at a high level of competition. So with that, I'd done anything I could, going way beyond the hours that were required in my role to get this program up and running and get a girls' centre of excellence at Middlesbrough. That's another way that we need as coaches to reflect upon our impact with young children. It's not just in the game, it's taking it outside the game. Do they go on to become coaches themselves or leaders in their own fields as they go through university? So within these first two examples, you can see there's a constant theme in my career where I've worked with female players and also within adapted soccer. Yet the very first team that I ever took on was a young U10 boys team at a club called Oxford Sports in South East London. This is where I really got to cut my teeth as I was a standalone coach. There was no mentors, there was no support assistant coaches or anyone else. It was just me and a group of U10 children and their parents. And I can still remember one of the harsh lessons that I learned in one of my earlier practices. I remember standing there and asking one of the boys as I'd done a team debrief to pass me a ball. As the ball rolled towards me, I went to put my full on it missed it and fell over. This is in front of impressionable nine-year-old children who can be quite honest in their reflections. I can still remember driving home in a car that night thinking, what was that about? They're going to absolutely ridicule me next week. Should I go back? Do I have the confidence to go back and face those boys again after making a fool of myself? And that was one of the first times that I had to make a choice. Do I want to continue with coaching or not? Now, obviously I did. I went back and there were many more barriers and challenges that were presented. Every coaching course that I took, every certification was a challenge. And I feel it is for anyone nowadays, it is one of the most nervous things that we can do in soccer is that we stand in front of our peers and an evaluator and they judge us on the session there and then on whether we're good enough to pass that certification and maybe move on to the next level. That was one of the pitfalls perceived at the time is that to become a coach, you have to go through all the streams of coaching and try and get to the A license as soon as possible. So you'll go through your preliminary at the time, hearing candidates, community, C license, B license, A license. Then you've got the mark of a good coach. 
Thankfully, it has been reversed. We now recognize that good coaches can work within certain age groups, genders, or general populations. So a good coach could be working at U10, and that is his forte. For me, my forte became working with girls and within adaptive soccer. Some coaches are really good working only with adult players. Others can work through the whole spectrum. There was a guy who I worked with at Middlesbrough, who I now understand is at Sunderland, and he could work comfortably with the U4 players in the morning and then senior players in the evening. He developed a full repertoire of working with different populations, but that's not easy and attainable for everyone. Some coaches really need to find their niche and be happy with that. Stay in that and make sure that that's where you feel comfortable and you can make most impact on these young lives. Now, in looking at some of the highs, you've also got to look at the challenges that come to many young coaches coming into the sport. And that is possibly dealing with expectations. Not only those of the players and the peers, the other coaches, but especially the parents. How do you address a parent's expectation, especially if it differs from yours? And there's only one real way to deal with this challenge of expectations, and that's to be honest and truthful. So the example I wish to use here is when I had to release a player from a provincial team and I was coming out with rationale why I was releasing her from the program before the eventual showcase event. Now this meeting was held with the child and the parent. As I went through the rationale, the parent challenged everything that I had put forward. And in the end, I had to relinquish and accept that the real reason that I wished to release the player was that they didn't have enough physical literacy in my belief to go and compete in a high performance competition. I believe that the physical literacy aspect of her performance was letting her down to play at that level. When I said this, the parents smiled and said, thank you. That is all I wanted to hear. And it was evident to me there that the parent knew exactly why his daughter was being released and just wanted to hear that reiterated for his daughter from myself. So again, please, as a coach going into sport, be honest with all around you. I'm now going into the twilight of my coaching career, if I must say, and my philosophy is very much going to be guided by the right things, the right reasons. Are we doing the right things, the right reasons? We hear lots of stories about players getting into teams because financial support from parents or because they're well connected and they can get favours. We can't be offering that. It's got to be the right things, the right reasons. And the right reasons must be always the player first, looking out for the player. In terms of supporting new coaches, the one piece of advice I'll give, and it was mentioned to me in a recent podcast, was in order to support players better, we need to be honest and we need to connect before we correct. There must be a connection with the players. So when I did work at Middlesbrough, I used to tell the coaches all the time, the number one quality for me, for any coach coming into the game, was to establish rapport with your players. Without rapport, whatever information you have is wasted. So when I look back on my career now over the last 30 years, this is the one aspect I think has changed most. When I started out coaching, we very much wore robots in the old English Football Association style. Stop, stand still, let me take your place. Go in, correct the error, come out, watch and see that the players can correct it, then walk away. That was it. Now we've got to engage players. We've got to understand how to impact them, how to, to improve them. But it's important, as I said earlier, most coaches will be looking at the player as an athlete, as a member of a team and their performance. But there's other aspects that can come into this. I've always looked to try and support the athlete from their personal traits and support how they can come in and combine with other team members 
to create that positive and productive culture. Culture is what leads everyone in their development. If we have the right culture where everyone wants to come and play, be challenged and develop their ability, that's what's gonna lead to success in the long run. Now in terms of these connections and these triggers, I want to conclude with a true story of a fellow coach of mine many years ago back at university who worked at Wimbledon Football Club. And he was working a soccer camp and there was a boy coming into the camp every day. and. He couldn't understand why one day this boy would be an exceptional player, academy-style player, had all the moves, and the next day he wouldn't be very good. He'd be switched off and not focused, and then on the third day he'd come back and he'd be that outstanding player, really shining and wanting to impress everyone. And then the fourth day, again, there was this lapse. What was going on? This boy was really hot one day and cold the next. At the end of the course, it was found out, sadly, and this is where we really need to be taking sport. The boy wasn't actually a boy. He was one of two boys. He was a twin. And because the parents couldn't afford to pay for both children to come on the camp, one came one day, the next on the next, and the third day, the first boy came back. So it's really key that can we firstly get to recognize and connect with our players? And as I've said many times before, Can we get through this pandemic and open up the sports fields, the arenas, the gyms to everyone? No one should be excluded. We need to be accessible and inclusive. If I was looking again at that golden wand that's gonna change how we look at sport, we need to embrace and bring people in. At the moment, the way things are looking, those with the money, those who are still in employment can afford those opportunities to try and keep their child ahead of the curve. That's not what sport is about. It's about bringing children together, bringing communities in, and really trying to work to develop a positive local community. And from within that, we're gonna create great citizens, possible future leaders and coaches, and athletes for the future. There are many coaches at the moment claiming that they had an impact on Alfonso Davis, who's just gone on and is lighting up the Bundesliga. Yet the question I want to ask for all these coaches is, if we are so effective and good as coaches, why did we only create one Alfonso Davis? Why couldn't we create a whole team of them? Because there is only one Alfonso Davis, there is only one John Club, and there is only one you as a coach or as an athlete. So please choose and define your path. As we said right at the beginning, and time is flying by, this is National Coaches Week. So please take the time this week, and not just this week, but every week, to thank your coach for taking the time to engage with you, support you, and encourage you in your dreams as you pursue whichever route you may take. You may not become a top elite athlete, but we will all grow from our experiences. I am still learning every time I walk on the field from my athletes, from my fellow coaches, and yes, from parents observing what I'm doing and offering me feedback. So please, Stay safe during this pandemic. Enjoy National Coaches Week. Let's reflect on our journey and how we can support each other to get sport back in the fields, the gyms, and the pools. Thank you for joining me. And please post some of your reflections. What are the major stories that have shaped your coaching and the players around you? Until next time, go stay safe and play safe.